Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. Follow the blood money. When you get to Baltimore, it slaps you in the face. I don't mean the tourist section. You'll quickly come to the parts of town that are all business, with people who'll do what they have to to survive in a city that has forgotten them. Anyway, you cut it. Baltimore is a tough town. Tough neighborhoods inhabited with tough people. It helped kindle the revolution. It fought off the British Navy. Everything that the world's thrown at it, you'd think it could take anything. Still, a vampire named Blood Money might just be too much. This is Tom Stretcher, porting in. The date is July 22nd, 1984, and it's been a busy couple of weeks. I've followed the trail of the vampire blood money up north to Baltimore, and been trying to deal with the situation up here. So far, it has not been going well. I haven't been able to report in until now because of the situation on the streets. Everyone's riled up. I'm sending this from the safe house, through the secure pipeline. I should have waited for containment branch to send reinforcements. Or for control, to send in more agents. I shouldn't have tried to handle this on my own. As a paranormal Pinkerton detective, I figured I could take out a single vampire on my own, and I didn't need backup. I was wrong. Blood money is a whole different kind of vampire than I'm used to dealing with. Now with all the dead and the destruction, I'm going to have to lay low for a while. Whole sections of Baltimore are now blocked off and shut down. Still, if I waited, I'm sure there'd be even more dead. I'll start at the beginning. Blood Money had fled D.C. in the night, and I was in pursuit up the interstate. His Maserati was a speed demon I never should have been able to catch, much less keep up with. But there were two things the monster hadn't counted on. One was that my car had a roaring monster of its own under the hood, complete with reinforced shocks, suspension, and upgraded coolant system to keep the big beast of my car purring all night long through the chase. The other was the Washington area traffic. In the middle of the night, traffic is almost normal, but it's still enough that you just can't floor it and go all out. So we were both roaring through the dark, hunter-chasing predator, weaving through traffic recklessly in the ancient prehistoric dance of the chase. Looking back, I'm glad he never stopped and confronted me. Instead, he chose to run, probably because he didn't know who or what he was dealing with, and probably because that's what he did as a man when he was chased by the authorities. A reckless chase didn't go unnoticed for long, though. Sure enough, the Maryland State Troopers took notice, and a patrol car pulled over Blood Money's car. As he stopped, I slowed down, glad to finally catch up. And then I realized what was about to happen. 
Blood money rolled down his window and he spoke to the state trooper. I was already throwing my car into reverse, pulling away, when the state trooper drew his pistol and opened fire on my car. Blinded by my lights and with pure luck, he only put three through the windshield and missed me entirely. More rounds slammed into the car's body as I hit the brakes and spun my car around to accelerate back down the highway in the wrong direction. Then I raced down the median, the concrete wall scraping along one side of my car and passing semi-blasting by on the other side. At least the gunfire had stopped. By the time I managed to shake the patrol car and finally turn around and head north again, Blood Money was long gone. Blood Money's Maserati was later found off the road with a body in the trunk. The body turned out to be the owner of the car that was later found abandoned in Baltimore. He had gotten to Baltimore ahead of me. Baltimore had seen better days. Boarded up buildings, gang tags on walls, and other signs of urban neglect were everywhere. Seagulls circled everywhere during the day, having long ago driven out the ravens that Poe had made famous in Baltimore. Everyone here has had to deal with a lot over time. Poverty, crime, and government neglect. They didn't need to deal with a psychopathic vampire as well. Driving around in a car with multiple bullet holes in it would attract attention almost anywhere else. Not here. A little clear tape kept the cracks from spreading until the windshield could be replaced and helped keep the rain out. I found my safe house and the packages that were waiting inside for me. Supplies, weapons, and a new identity were all waiting for me. The heavy was in a large wooden plank, clanking metal inside, ready for use. A Chevy truck was also there as an alternate ride in case something went wrong with my car, and also to move the heavy. Research had finally come through and that stack of files proved vital to my operations. While we still don't know Blood Money's full identity, there's a wealth of information on vampiric mind control. One thing is that eye contact is essential. That explained why Blood Money usually wore sunglasses, so he wasn't constantly dominating people and drawing unwanted attention. It might be that he is new to the power and doesn't know how to turn it off. It also explained why he wasn't able to take me over with his gaze reflected in the curved mirror. Maybe that's why vampires hate mirrors. You can see them, but they can't just take over your mind. The other part is the voice. I've experienced that compelling voice myself. It's enough alone to mess with you. When you put that gaze and voice together, I don't see how anyone could resist it, at least on their own. It has limitations, though. Faith helped resist vampiric domination. That was probably why a lot of the gangsters shot in D.C. were wearing gold crosses. Blood money wasn't taking any chances with any believers. There's also a limit in range, which seems to vary between 10 and 30 feet or so. Though there's elder vampires that could bewitch an entire amphitheater in the ancient world. Finally, daylight and holy ground seems to end the control, and victims come back to themselves, but with no memory or only a foggy dream of what they had done. Of course, blood money just needs to keep his mind slaves literally in the dark, hidden away, waiting his next orders.
So I'd be facing blood money and some mind control and the new vampires he created and the gangsters he had under his mind control. Would have been nice if control had been able to assign a containment team, but I'd have to take care of this on my own. Locals and the police wouldn't talk to me when I tried to pick up the trail. They could smell the outsider on me. I took a more circumspect route than before. I knew any direct approach would have been impossible. Still, I had friends in town. You need that in this line of work. And for those not-so-friendly friends, I had a solution to their problems. The trail got hot fast. None of the local gangs were happy with the new gang war, or that an arrogant outsider named Blood Money was taking over whole territories. The local police weren't happy with body count that was stacking up either. So cautiously, indirectly, working through people whose lives had been turned upside down by a force that they didn't understand, began to put together a picture of Blood Money's operations and network. Then, I went to work cutting it all down. One by one, I found his new vampires and put them to final rest. New vampires are easier to find. They're more reckless, more aggressive, and dominated by their hunger for blood. Usually haven't figured out how to hide, blend in, like older, better-fed vampires. I made sure that they weren't going to last long enough to learn. As for the mind-controlled, I left them alone and stayed out of their way. They were as much the victims of blood money as the people he killed. Sure, they were guilty of a whole host of crimes, but... I'm not a cop anymore. I left that life behind me a long time ago. Still, by going after his vampires, I was accomplishing two things. One, I was slowing down the spread of his underground empire, which meant fewer people would be dying every night. The other was that, eventually, I would drive blood money to do something about the damage I was doing to his vampire empire. He would either flee the city or would have to confront me and try and hunt the hunter. Either way, I was prepared. Or so I thought. Finally, after over a week of vampire hunting, I gave Blood Money a call. I had already memorized all the payphone numbers in the neighborhood he was haunting. And so when I saw him passing by a phone booth through a telephoto lens, I gave that phone a call from the tapped line I had on the rooftop overlooking from a safe distance. He froze as the booth rang, looked around and found nobody nearby. Finally, picked up. Yo, he opened. Smooth, baritone voice, broken up enough by the bad connection to be bearable. I figured that the telephone line would break up his voice enough to make it possible to listen to, not be enthralled. I was right. Blood money, I began. Who this? he asked. Call me Tom. I've been following your work. Hey, Big T, why are you following me? You have to be stopped. I'm the one who's been putting down your vampires. So, I'm talking to a dead man. We all gotta die someday, I answered. He laughed. Not me. I'm gonna live forever and see future cars. So... We should meet Blood Money. Now why would I ever do that? Because this is going to keep on happening. That's why. You're going to keep on killing people. 
and I'm going to keep on taking down your vampires. It's going to keep on happening until one of us is stopped. So let's meet, and then it'll stop. For one of us, at least. Mm-hmm. He paused. Okay, okay. You got me. I got this place. No, I cut him off. I'll pick the place and call this phone tomorrow night with a location. I don't like this, I'm telling you. If you want all this to stop, this is the only way. Your only other choice is to leave Baltimore and try and start all over again. All right, we'll meet. Maybe we'll talk and work this all out. Sure, blood money. We'll talk. I hung up. The trap was set and baited. But who was going to trap who? The place was an abandoned warehouse at the edge of the city. It's the one that's since been blocked off by an alphabet soup of federal agents. I may have burned a few bridges on this one. Doors and windows were all boarded up, and there was nothing but an abandoned yard facing the front side. I couldn't take any chances that stray rounds might hit a bystander. From my position on an inside steel balcony with my back to the brick wall, I would be able to see anything that came in from any window or door. The occupying rats, roaches, and stray dogs were my only company as I was setting up. They soon left as night came. Even they knew better than to stay the night with what was about to go down. By the time that night had fallen, I'd had all day to finish setting up my trap. I hoped it would be enough. But there was still a lot that could go wrong. Until dark fell, there was nothing to do but wait in the stifling summer Baltimore heat. Waiting was the hardest part. Questions and doubts swirled around my head like swarming gnats in summer. Would it be enough? Was I really ready? Would I survive? Finally, would I really get blood money? Darkness fell, and for a while nothing happened. And all of the night sounds around me, crickets, small crawling things, stopped. They sensed the approach of the unnatural. I readied the dead switch in the heavy and waited. It wouldn't be long. There was no subtlety or hesitation in the vampire's approach. They burst into the warehouse, through every boarded-up window and door with reckless fury. If I hadn't been on a second-story balcony with a brick wall to my back, I'd have been taken right then. The vampires were fast. They charged inside the warehouse in less than a second. There were over a score of the undead in there, all after my blood. They were all new ones, though, without a lot of self-control or direction. And they paused to gather together and snarl and hiss in my general direction. And snarl at each other to form a crude pecking order. Older vamps would never be this reckless and uncoordinated. Still, eventually, they'd have gotten their act together and easily overwhelmed. I never gave them the chance. First, I flicked the dead switch. It set off a series of flares that temporarily blinded their sensitive night vision and also provided steady illumination for me. It also set off the four claymore mines I'd set up in the corner of the ground floor. The loud crack and roar of the explosives sent an unavoidable hurricane of shot through all of the vampires gathered below. That kind of damage would put any man down, but only stun the vampires. That 
was all it had to do, though. It gave me time to wrap my hands around the butterfly triggers, the heavy barrel, M2 Browning 50 caliber machine gun. Mod Deuce. This one was donated to the Pinkerton Armory in 45, and it's a beaut. Likely the best machine gun ever made. It's just like the one I used to use back in my days in the Army, and it was still in use. Wouldn't surprise me if it's still in use for decades in the future. I needed the tripod to keep the gun steady, and still the heavy bucked and kicked wildly, making it difficult to aim. 128 pounds, the mother of all machine guns still knew how to kick her heels up and show her man a good time. The steady, low-booming cough of the gun formed the beat for the macabre dance of vampires as the 50 caliber bullets hit home. Normally, gunfire only makes a vampire mad, but these bullets can blow off arms, legs, and heads. No amount of regeneration can keep up with that. The vampires got themselves together enough to try to rush me, but it was too late. Angling the gun down, the bullets would ricochet off the ground floor, up from the concrete, and strike them again on the way up, tearing them apart, rending limbs, bursting bodies open from the inside. They ran out of blood, rage, or whatever it was that was letting them regenerate and collapsed under my fire. Still... They tried to claw and crawl their way across the floor, towards me, and up the walls. I played the stream of fire relentlessly across them like a fire hose, dousing a fire until it was completely out. Even when they were still, I kept on firing until my ammunition belt ran dry. I wasn't done yet. The bundle of ashwood stakes, mallet, and hacksaw waited in the box next to me. I didn't have a lot of time to finish up before the police came, but I needed to make sure none of these vampires would rise again to drink the blood of the living. There were 25 vampires, and it took 15 minutes to ensure their final death. Practice makes perfect, after all, and I took no chances. But it felt like hours. Blood money had not been among them. He had gotten away. Again. In the end, I had to flee the scene and leave the heavy behind. Sorry about that. Maybe ask really, really nicely? The feds will give it back. Blood money skipped town. The whole time I was fighting his minions, he was on the road. I'm going to track him down. Find him. Settle the score. He's got to pay for everything he's done. All the murders. All the lives he's twisted upside down into unlife. Anywhere he goes, he's going to cause death and destruction. And I'll be right behind him. Control. I might have to go to ground for a while. I've made too big a mess. Crossed with authorities in a way too big for them to just let me go. Likely I'll end up in prison. Or worse. Other Pinkerton's agents need to steer clear for a while while I get this taken care of. And I will take care of it. Too many have already paid the price already. So, I'm going to be out of contact for a while until this whole thing is finally done. That way, you'll have the deniability you need. 
and hopefully you won't lose anyone else to what's going on. One final thing. When, or if, I come back, if I'd been turned into one of those things, take care of me, would you? Tom Stretcher, out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike international license. This episode was written and performed by David Howquist. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Ken Dickinson performs our audio editing. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on superversivesf.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Check out our unauthorized podcast as well. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, no apostrophe. Send noble messenger possums with letters on their backs or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.